Welcome to the third episode of the World Without Walls podcast, produced by the Stop the Wall campaign. Stop the Wall is the Palestinian grassroots movement struggling, uh, struggling against Israel's apartheid wall and the settlements. It organizes and mobilizes communities on the ground in Palestine. In 2017, it has launched, together with other Palestinian and Mexican movements, the initiative for a world without walls. From a one-day, uh, sorry, from a one-time action day against physical and systemic walls of injustice, World Without Walls has transformed into a continuous space for movements across uh, the globe to explore the connections between the Palestinian cause and for activists in Palestine and Palestine solidarity groups around the world to learn about other movements. Uh, and the interconnections that unite the struggles. We have been doing so through compilations of essays, online photo exhibits, webinars, and more. Uh, the series of World Without Walls podcasts will focus on the various forms of injustice playing out in the way states and corporations address the COVID-19 pandemic. For Palestinians, the pandemic has deepened the impact of Israeli apartheid in many ways from Israel's denial of access to vaccines and the exploitation of Palestinian labor to keep an economy afloat while um, Jewish Israeli citizens are in lockdown to the fact that Palestinians, uh, um, before the pandemic, uh, there, um, there was like, they were accumulating a crisis on top of um, a decades old pre-existing conditions of occupation and disposition. At the same time, uh, Palestinians have shown incredible capacity to face the new crisis exactly because organizing structures of resistance have already been in place. In this uh, series of podcasts, uh, I mean, in the first uh, two episodes, we've already um, invited two guests to talk about, um, about medical apartheid uh, in South Africa, and in Brazil and the connections with Palestine. And uh, we, in this episode, we would want to invite um, our guests to help us uh, to place this reality in a bigger picture in relation to the situation in South Korea. We, your co-host, Susanna Baria from the People's Health, Health Movement and me, Manalish Kerr from Stop the Wall Campaign. Today, we are welcoming our guest, Jangwoo Kim, uh, who's based in South Korea. Uh, he will help us in highlighting uh, false narratives uh, regarding South Korea and Israel uh, as model countries in dealing with the pandemic uh, that should be praised either through the testing programs in the case of South Korea or uh, vaccination in the case of Israel. Uh, to, to expose the falsity of the two countries' mainstream narratives, uh, we will discuss with uh, Jangwoo the pitfalls of South Korea's entrenched surveillance uh, on marginalized groups and the role of the private sector uh, in combating the pandemic. Uh, through that, uh, we will draw also on connections with the situation uh, in Palestine. Um, I wanna turn uh, over now to Susanna, my co-host uh, to introduce our guest. Over to you, Susanna. Hi everyone, I'm Susanna from the People's Health Movement, your co-host 
So let me start directly presenting our guest for today's podcast. Jung Poo Kim is currently a member of the People's Health Movement in South Korea. Uh, PHM is a global network bringing together grassroots activists, civil society organizations, and academic institutions from around the world to work on health issues. In addition to his involvement in PHM, Kim has been working for the People's Health Institute for the last three years. PHI is a progressive nonprofit research organization based in South Korea. In his organization, Kim and his team of researchers um, look, do research um, from the perspective of the people, not that of the state economic, economics or experts. For that, the organization depends on donations from common people rather than the financial support of the government or private corporations to run its activities. Jungbu, thank you for being with us today. We are very much looking forward to this conversation. Before we begin, I'm going to turn it over to Manal again to share with us the latest updates about the COVID-19 situation in Palestine and the grave consequences of Israel's, Israel's medical apartheid regarding the vaccine. Uh, thank you a lot, uh, Susanna. So Israel uh, continues, uh, as I highlighted in, um, in our first episode, that Israel continues to practice the medical apartheid against, uh, against us in Palestine, mainly uh, um, medical, uh, sorry, um, vaccine apartheid, COVID-19 vaccine apartheid, uh, because Israel still denies us uh, access to, uh, to vaccines uh, although it is, um, it's been one of the world's fastest uh, countries uh, vaccinating its people uh, against COVID-19. Uh, and now nearly more than half of the Israeli population has already received one dose of, um, of the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Uh, and recently, Israel has, uh, has, has come under fire from rights groups like Human Rights Watch, uh, organizations around the world, uh, politicians, um, also across the world, criticizing Israel uh, for donating um, COVID-19 vaccines uh, to foreign allies, mainly to Guatemala, uh, Honduras, and uh, and the Czech Republic, while uh, Palestinians uh, haven't received any shot from uh, from Israel, although it is um, by law, according to international law, uh, it's the, um, the obligation of Israel as the occupying power of Palestine uh, to, uh, to vaccinate uh, the people under its occupation. And what, what, adds, what makes it even looks worse is not just because Israel denies, uh, denies Palestinians access to vaccination, but because donating uh, COVID-19 vaccines to, uh, to what Israel calls allies makes these countries that accepted the vaccines from Israel uh, complicit in the medical apartheid uh, Israel has been practicing against, uh, against Palestinians. Uh, we all know that Guatemala, the Czech Republic, and Honduras, they all moved their embassies to, uh, to Jerusalem, uh, although, it, although Israel has no right in, in making uh, Jerusalem the capital of Israel, and this is also against international law. And here talking about uh, East Jerusalem in particular, because uh, it's part of uh, the occupied territories. And also the Czech Republic is, is one of the countries uh, that uh, plays a kind of uh, a lobbying role in, uh, in the EU in order to, to support Israel or 
to um, disrupt any decisions uh, if, if there were any decisions to be taken against Israel in the EU um, to, to thwart or to uh, sorry to disrupt all of that. And uh, also the Czech Republic um, uh, has been named in an international criminal court uh, pre-trial decision uh, as one of the countries supporting um, Israel's argument that the court had no jurisdiction over war crimes in uh, the Palestinian territories. So it's um, it's really like uh, it's it, it that puts Israel and what putting Israel under under fire is how it, it is taking advantage of the pandemic to reward uh, to reward its allies or countries that are uh, complicit in entrenching its um, its apartheid regime. Adding to this is the fact that. Uh, it, the pandemic is spreading quickly in Palestine. It, it's, it's reached a point that is uncontrollable, uh, especially in the besieged Gaza Strip, because uh, because the Gaza Strip is one of the most populated areas in the world. It's been under blockade, uh, Israeli blockade, since uh, 15 years. Uh, that uh, healthcare system is dysfunctional there due to the blockade. Uh, um, uh, and uh, the wars that the brutal wars that uh, that Israel has has waged on uh, on Gaza uh, since the blockade has uh, has started. And in the West Bank, the situation is not really uh, uh, is not really better, uh, especially because we are still waiting for the vaccines to arrive. Uh, and we are expecting. I mean, in Palestine, we are expecting to. Uh, to receive vaccines from COVAX, but this program might not succeed because uh, we are short of fund um, and the financial support that we need uh, in order to get uh, the, uh, the vaccine. So that's just an overview about, um, about the situation um, in Palestine. And I would like to hear more about the situation in South Korea. Uh, I turn it over to you again, Susanna, um, to raise the first question to, to Jangu, our guest. Over to you. Thank you very much, Manel, for a very concerning update about the situation in Palestine. turning to South Korea, Jong-woo, could you tell us a bit more about the situation there? Um, South Korea has been widely praised for its use of technology in containing the pandemic, and the focus has been largely on South Korea's enormous virus test and trace program to track COVID-19 patients and suspected patients. And of course, this was facilitated by the country's existing ep epidemiological surveillance system. But can you give us a bit more insight into this and on the impacts that this has had on socially vulnerable groups such as ethnic minorities and the LGBTQI? Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for inviting. Uh, yeah, uh, the Korean government have been promoted uh, three T and one P. It's the policy of testing, tracing, testing, and participation. 
However, uh, P, which refers to participation here, means just compliance rather than active participation. And 3T is definitely effective and necessary to control the increase in the number of confirmed cases. But there was not enough concern about uh, protecting people's personal inf information in the process. Uh, this is because the goal of suppressing confirmed cases has overwhelmed all other values. So many people were more afraid of revealing contract tracing than COVID-19 itself. In particular, sexual minorities, uh, LGBTQ, felt threatened by the disclosure of contact tracing during the COVID-19 pandemic. There was a group infection in a gay club in May 2020. At that time, the media strengthened the hatred of sexual minorities, and sexual minorities were very afraid of an outing at home or at work. Furthermore, the government has secured a list of more than 10,000 people nearby through cell phone location tracking. Without a clear legal basis, the government considers people who were there were as social threats and excessively collected and utilized information. I don't think there has been oppression of ethnic minorities in South Korea through the national surveillance system like in China. Rather, the problem was that minorities were excluded and neglected from the protection of the state. It was the business owner who monitored them. They kept migrant workers stay in the accommodation and monitored them with CCTV while Korean workers walked around freely. This is really historical and systemic racism. Uh, I think that why the state didn't suppress minorities through the surveillance system is because those minorities do not pose a threat to the regime. If it is an individual and organization that poses a threat to the regime, it may be possible to monitor them illegally. There have been many precedents so far in Korea. Uh, even if the surveillance system isn't being used like that now, but there's so guarantee, there's no guarantee that it won't be in the future as well. That, thank you a lot for, for this insightful um, answer, Jangwoo. And um, what you've just said about uh, of uh, systematically constructed others or subhumans, uh, even before the spread of the pandemic, proves that uh, the argument that the, um, the spread of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has only solidified uh, these inequalities that existed long before the pandemic and also uh, it also called in question um, that uh, these systematic inequalities uh, against minority groups, against colonized people like the situation of Palestine and it was um, how urgent it is uh, to, to respond to not only to, to the poor, the but the whole system that is opening and subjugating uh, these um, uh, these groups uh, and part of the systems that 
I mean, that the capitalist enterprise, I mean, plays a role in um, uh, in solidifying the the blight of uh, of systematically uh, marginalized and vulnerable groups, and um, and this brings us to the other false narrative which is about uh, about the privatization of the healthcare system uh, i would like you jangwu to um, to discuss this false narrative um, regarding to what extent um, that uh, that the privatization nature of the healthcare system in south korea has been projected showing the priority of uh, private provision over public provision of healthcare. Can you please elaborate more on the falsity of this claim? In South Korea, there are large private hospitals with state-of-the-art equipment and excellent doctors. Then uh, can I say that the Korean medical system is excellent because there are such great hospitals? Uh, I don't think so. Most of those Great hospitals are in Seoul, uh, uh, the capital of Korea. On the other hand, there are no hospitals in rural areas. The hospital can't make, uh, cannot make much money there. Therefore, avoidable, avoidable mortality is higher in the region than in Seoul. Some people who died in the rural areas could have lived, could have lived if they lived in Seoul. Uh, there is a high barriers to hospitals, uh, especially for people who are hard to go to hospitals like the disabled and the elderly and uh, homeless and migrant workers who are hard to pay for medical expenses. Uh, it's the public sector that provided home visiting service mainly and carried out programs to treat homeless and migrant workers. Of course, these programs are also have problems though. Uh, how about during a uh, public health crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, the development of the test toolkits and diagnosis systems that made the situation in Korea better took place in the public sector. Testing toolkits were created by private companies, but this was also possible under the public initiative. Even though there are some problems, but 3T was also carried out in the public sector. On the other hand, private hospitals, which account for about 90% of the beds in Korea, had, been, have, had very little presence in this crisis. Uh, because they did their best, uh, they did their best not to receive COVID-19 patients. Because of this, 10% of public hospitals had to treat about 80% of COVID-19 patients. In Korea, there were COVID-19 patients who died due to lack of bed, even though there were not many confirmed cases compared to US or European countries. Another problem is that there is a vacuum in the role of public hospitals that I just talked about. Uh, as public hospitals are in charge of COVID-19 patients, 
homeless and migrant workers who originally used public hospitals couldn't go to the hospitals. Uh, basically, uh, private medical institute, institutions that need to make a profit, uh, they are, so they are vulnerable to treating low-income patients or reserving medical inequality between regions. Uh, they don't have much motivation to prepare for and respond to a public health crisis as well. Thank you very much, Jungwoo, for um, this clarification. And um, as we have seen in other countries around the world, the private sector in Korea also has been avoiding actually to step up to the requirements of the pandemic. And it had to be the public sector that was there to ensure that access to treatment was uh, possible. And just as a closing question, um, we wanted to ask you, um, about the lesson learned. Uh, the pandemic, pandemic made visible the pitfalls of the South Korean measures to contain the virus. And can you share with us some of the takeaway lessons from this experience and how such, le such lessons can give insight to avoid repeating the same mistakes in future health emergency situations? Well, actually, this is not the first infectious disease recently in Korea, actually we, we have experienced the uh, MERS in uh, 2015. So we, we Korean society learned many lessons from experiencing another that, that MERS in 2015. So thanks to that, we were able to respond from the beginning of COVID-19 and the transparency of information disclosure was better than before yeah, of course, there is. Uh, uh, there are some problems still. We had still problems, though. Uh, anyway, there are still uh, many problems left, such as shortage of public health care, uh, and in particular groups that are hard to speak out, like uh, people who have disabilities, homeless, uh, migrant migrant workers. They are uh, still far in priority, and they are put at greater risk. Uh, this situation has not changed at all from the uh, in in 2015. Uh, then, is this a new problem caused by COVID-19? We cannot say that uh, it's new. No, uh, it's. As you mentioned, it's a systematic and historical issue. Therefore, it is difficult to change it by any single policy or institution. Uh, there must be a, a structural st changes. As these problems have been uh, revealed to the world due to COVID-19, I think we should work harder to make them visible and politicize them so that the government has a responsibility. So the goal of our society and the government should not just be the 
number of confirmed cases, the number of deaths, death, or the number of vaccinated people. But uh, uh, it should be protection of uh, dignity and rights with nobody left out. Uh, I'd like to emphasize democracy at all levels and all areas. Uh, people affected by government's policies should be able to participate in the policy-making process. And the uh, uh, workers affected by the countermeasures to COVID-19 at work should be able to participate in the decision-making. In fact, in Korea, hospitals with labor unions and governance that reflected labor union opinions were able to build a safer environment. It's because uh, frontline workers are the best ones who know the field. Uh, it's, it is so important to create governance that can reflect, uh, reflect the voices of the field and the voices that are likely to be excluded, like uh, disabilities or the homeless like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you a lot, Jenggu, for this insightful um, answer and actually in the analysis of what lessons should be taken out of this um, global crisis. And I think that if there is anything positive about, uh, about the, uh, this health crisis is the lessons that we learn and um, that the I mean, the, the feeling that there is an emergency or an urgency, sorry, uh, to change the status quo and to change the existing situation uh, of inequality, of vulnerability. Uh, and here in Palestine, um, as I mentioned before, uh, the pandemic has just shown uh, us uh, the brutality of Israel's uh, longstanding apartheid regime, but at the same time, it has uh, shown us the importance of um, of dismantling this uh, this regime and how we should join uh, in together in order in solidarity. I mean, and joint struggle with people uh, around the the world, especially with marginalized groups, in order to uh, dismantle uh, Israel apartheid regime and other uh, oppressive systems. Uh, around um, uh, the world and uh, here uh, we come to, uh, I mean, our podcast ca comes to an end. Uh, I really thank you, Jango, again for all of your um, insightful um, responses. Uh, we really uh, got to know more about the situation in South Korea and uh, how to move, uh, to move ahead uh, with from there to, in order to have a better future. Uh, I would also to like you, Susanna, for co-hosting this uh, podcast with me. Uh, and uh, uh, for our listeners, um, just uh, I want to say that this is the third and the last of the World Without Walls series of podcasts. Uh, if you missed um, any of our two previous podcasts about uh, COVID-19 apartheid from South Africa to uh, Palestine and um, medical apartheid, um, uh, sorry, COVID-19 racism uh, from Brazil to Palestine, uh, you can uh, find them on our Twitter and Facebook. 
Um, I would also like to thank uh, Al Funun Popular Dance Group for their uh, music. Uh, you can check them out on SoundCloud because they have uh, amazing music. Thank you very much. <laughs>